So Let's maybe it, she baby. learned something, but a little bit too late. He was mad at, at Mook. He was mad at Hillary. He was mad at Podesta, all these people around her, because they did not see that she had to hammer away at the economy. Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, The Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, The Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today so we can bring in guests who are continuing to create vocabulary and melodic improvisation. They've been doing it for the last five decades. My guest con continues to be a mentor, a leader, both in the classroom, on the bandstand. Dear friend of the program, David Garibaldi, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Brother Jake, how are you, man? Yeah, great to hear you, man. <laughs> why is it so Why is it so windy? Is it windy right now? I don't know. I, I listen. We're not going to waste any time. I got a. We got a game on this program called Name That Voice. I'm going to oh. play this for you, and I want you to come back and we'll riff on it. Okay. All right. Hey, if it's too windy, I'll move to a different location. I'm outside. No, you. No, when you talk, it's good. It's just you. You know, I know you're on the East Coast. Hold on one second. All right. That was a period where we were like, you know, still are, and at that time, really good friends, hung out a lot, you know, played together. In fact, there's this picture, if I can find it. Remember Please. Rich versus Roach, that famous... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Dave, Dave and I took a picture of that two drum sets again. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to No, you need to find that, man. I mean, because he called... We, were, yeah. you know, we just met in college and played, and at that time, he was, I was like, you know, the jazz guy and, you know, listening to Tony Williams and, you know, going for that kind of stuff, and Dave was checking out Bernard Purdy and, you know, really starting to hone his craft as a, you know, as a great funk drummer, you know. So that was like, kind of, you know, and then he went into the Air Force after that, but that was just out of, out of college. That's how we knew each other. Were you able to, uh, were you able to hear that? I was. Rick I Quintanel. Rick Quintanel. And, uh, yeah. But I, you know, I think this is a this is an area that's been unexplored by us. Uh, is this community college where you guys met? And I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, what kind of gigs you were doing at that time, especially. And here's the point, David. It's like George Porter. I, I was transcribing my interview with him, and he was talking about a lot of the cats that never made it out of the 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 little clubs. In, uh, you know, on uh, on the strip in New Orleans, but they ultimately let guys like him sit in on the bandstand. That was a lesson for 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 Porter. And I'm wondering at that time in community college, if you had an opportunity to sit in on the bandstand with some cats. Well, let's see. Um, I was uh, let's see. I got out of high school. I was 17 years old. Uh, I had been, this is right before college, and I had been uh, playing on Tuesday nights with the Sid Reese Big Band. So all older guys, I mean, they, I don't know why they liked the way I played because I didn't have anything together yet. But um, 
it was a great learning experience. Uh, you know, I couldn't even play an eight-bar solo. I mean, I can hardly do it now. I certainly <laughs> couldn't do it then. Uh, and they were just really great. Taught me a lot of stuff. You know, life, music, got me other gigs. Uh, one of my first other gigs, uh, let's see, well, the first gig was, paid gig was with that big band, the Sid Reese big band. And uh, in Livermore, California, on the back of a truck, flatbed truck, out in front of his music store. And then they got me a gig, I think um, it was a New Year's Eve gig. And it was with a stripper. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I was 17. And uh, maybe it just turned 18. But I had... Only one stick and one brush. I somehow forgot to get all my gear together. So they were really upset about that, especially the stripper. <laughs> well, I want to go back for a second. Sid Reese, big band. Okay, again, George Porter. Yeah. George Porter said that he was in a big band, but he considered that they played a lot of swing and bebop, and it was really only a five-piece. Did you... Did you, I mean, you were on the back of a flatbed truck in a big band, or did I miss something there? That's right. That's what we did. That was our first gig. That was when I discovered that I could actually make money doing this. Right, right. That's And, yeah. uh, mm. you know, that was a big moment. Um, and then also, you know, at that time, then I went into, you know, enrolled in community college. That was Chabot Junior College in Hayward, California. Actually, it wasn't even in Hayward at that time. It was in San Leandro. They it was where they had just opened, and it was not far from uh, where the Raiders started at Frank Ewell Field in uh, East Oakland. That's not you know not far from where the Coliseum is right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's where uh, I met Rick and. Uh, Mr. Graves, Mr. Uh, Gene Graves, who was our teacher, and was just a great, great man, man. You know, he just, every day was a lesson in life and everything else. He was he was a drummer himself. Uh, just a really cool guy. You, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, though. In Hayward, there was a really intense black chitlin circuit going on. James Brown and the Flames. Uh, a, a myriad of bands, and and I don't know how well you could have actually heard Kintanal's audio, but he talked about the fact that he was the jazz. You were guys were both into jazz, but then you started to kind of go off more in the Bernard Purdy R and B direction. Did you wind up uh, playing uh, any gigs? Did you back up uh, soul singers or anybody on that Chitlin circuit? No. Never. Because, uh, yeah. No, because, uh, you know, I was getting into James Brown. My friends and I, took they took me to see James Brown. That was the first time that I saw him. And uh, it was right around that period. And that really changed everything. That kind of moved me in the direction of wanting to play, you know, rock and roll and funk and all that. But still loved jazz. I still dug it, still was playing it. Um, Rick was a way more accomplished drummer at the time uh, than I was. He, he had really nice chops. He could play with a big band. I mean, he could do all kinds of stuff already, and we were this, you know, young, real young guys. And then after that, 
uh, you know, by the time I was 19, I was already in the military. I was gone. You know? So, you know, there were clubs. There were there were there was a a club called Cicero that was in downtown Hayward, and this guy Jimmy Cicero, he had a really cool like trio in there, organ, you know, with drums and that kind of stuff, and uh, that was a kind of a famous spot for young people. There was kind of these young teenager kind of nightclubs, and then there was another one that I used to play at uh, called the Penthouse. And there was a band in there that was a regular band. They were called Tommy and the Hustlers. <laughs> and uh, they uh, had, so it was Tommy Narducio was his name, I think. Tommy and the Hustlers. And they kind of had the regular gig there. And they were like kind of, you know, the ones that everybody looked at, you know, kind of were listening to. They were the big men on campus and all that, the cool guys. And then I would play in there. They had like an off-night kind of a thing that uh, I would go play, and there was a keyboard player, an older guy named Don Haas. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I know that cat. And uh, so, but right after that, you know, I went into the military, you know, uh, so I was gone, you know, when things were were kind of developing there. Yeah, but I I guess also I'd love you to, if you could move into a a nice conference room, maybe it would be great to hear you. We want to get every single word you're saying. Ah, I'm sorry, it's it's not good. Well, it's just, you know what it is? I, I need Gary. I, we need full. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, you know, here's the thing. I'll walk back towards my hotel right now. Um, <laughs> it, there's a, there is a little bit of noise out here. I feel like you're by the like I-95 or something. You're by the freeway. I mean, there's just a lot of traffic. I'm in, I'm in Secaucus, New Jersey. <laughs> Secaucus, man. Yeah. They used to broadcast the, the satellite, the Mets games out of there back when I was growing up in Long Island. You know, um. Uh-huh. So, okay, first of all, and why was the stripper upset with just a, a, a stick and a brush? I, I'm not, I'm, I don't really know why. I mean, you could still get, you could still play Duke Ellington tunes. No, but I couldn't hit her moves. You know, the, with a stick and a brush, it was like boom swish. <laughs> so was this a burlesque club, or was this, I mean, can we get an idea? Was this just an outdoor event? Where, it, where? Was a, it, was a, it was a Friday, not Friday, it was a place called Frenchies where Tower Power played. Yeah, that's what Rocco and, told me about Frenchies, man. Yeah, Frenchies was a kind of a spot, you know, in Hayward, and uh, was used to be pretty. They used to have these supper clubs all over the Bay Area. That was Bimbos in San Francisco, Frenchies in Hayward, and uh, these were places where, you know, people went dressed up and went out and heard music. So this was a new a New Year's gig. I, I, you know, the overarching, um, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, I had an opportunity to interview M. Tume uh, a couple, about two weeks ago, and he was just talking about, you know, I'm t- very interested in, like, you know, continuing vocabulary in all music, how that happens, how you guys were able to stretch that, and ultimately what he said today in academia is that, you know, it's great that somebody can play a John Coltrane solo or transcribe an Elvin Jones solo, but it doesn't really tell him anything about who they are. So in many ways, it's like you're going back, and he called it tracing paper music. You're just going over what's already been done. And I look at your lessons. I mean, you were not, like, you provide lessons today. You do private lessons, but 
what did you have private lessons when you were coming up? I mean, the lessons were on the bandstand. Is that right? Well, yes. Uh, you know, I had teachers. I mean, I learned in elementary school and high school and college and all that. Um, private teachers were not really really wasn't what people did. That's not how you learned at that time, you know. Um, you know, the, the only way, really, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say. I, I kind of was, came up sort of on the cusp of, like, the rock and roll era, you know. And so learning was very different than it has become. You know, it was more like you had to get the records. You had to listen to what guys did. You had to figure out, try to figure out what they were doing from the records. And then maybe if you were lucky, you got to see them if they came through your town. So it was very difficult to build a, a plain personality, but you could do it. And the end result was very individual sounding players because there wasn't all this stuff to copy. You kind of had to figure it out for yourself. When Are you, you following me? Oh, I love it. No, no, this is so important. So what do you tell your the cats? To, all I'm saying is that the, the the other part that George Porter was talking about is that cats that do have bands today, put a, put aside Tower of Power and Journey and Steve Miller who are you know, you're in Sea Caucus and you know, you're 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 you know, the million the million gig tour as you refer to it. You know, you guys are you guys are working off a street credibility, but for cats that are trying to put bands together now, they don't necessarily let you, people sit in with them because they're just trying to make their own way. Where in the past, you, you the older cats were more secure to say, yeah, man, come on, sit in. You know, if you can't play, we're just going to walk off the stage. But that, to me, is more emboldening. That is more of a, that's a school. A school is not going in and just copying what, like you said, we're, we're inundated with so much information. So I guess when you're talking to younger students, do you tell them to drop off the grid and seek through just practical application? How do you get them to seek so that they can develop their own sound? Well, you know, now I'm in the elevator. Yeah, now it's even, I mean, you have a, it's, it's like uh, some sort of. It's coming. Yeah, it's yeah don't coming. worry. I'm, I'm stepping out of the elevator. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now I'm out of the elevator. Ah. <laughs> 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 Well, you know, it was it's it was a different way that that people learned and you developed, uh, you know, at, during that era because there was a, a lot of it was there was uh, standard you know jazz tunes that everybody had to know, and so you learn to play those things and then you go out and play with people. Everybody played the same kind of tunes, and um, you know that doesn't. It's not like that now. And what I'm so my point is that, but but being that you're still, I mean, you do you do do private lessons for cats. So yeah, but here's okay. Just to, you know, to to address that. Yeah. What I tell you know people is, you know, you want to study with me. I do things in a very personalized sort of a way. I mean, that's how I learned. I, I you know I developed kind of my own way play based on all the things that I was hearing and so I put together you know my vocabulary doing that 
you know, copying guys, that kind of stuff. I never did much transcribing, not till later. Transcribing is a good way to understand what people are playing, you know, but still, ultimately, you have to take those things that you're learning and you have to do your thing with it because this is art, you know, no more, no less. You, uh, it's an expression of kind of what you see uh, in the music that you want to play. And that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of playing, a lot of discovery sessions. And so that's what I encourage my students to do. I, I'm a big believer in fundamentals, developing technique, that kind of stuff, having good fundamental skills. You can read and all that stuff. And then create. What do you want to create for yourself? And that's always the first question I ask someone who studies with me is what do you, what do you want? What do you want to go with this? Why are you coming to see me? What do you want to create? And oftentimes um, people have not thought about it like that. There's a really good book by a guy named Steve Chandler. It's called Fearless. And he's like a life coach and, you know, does all these, you know, helps people and, you know, motivational speaker and all this stuff. And that's kind of his question that he always asks when people come to see him is what, what do you want to create? And, you know, kind of when I read that, it really struck me because that's exactly the thing that I ask people that study with me. I've been doing it for years now and it really resonated with me because it's true. You know, it's not about what I want to do when they come to see me. It's what they want. That's why they're there. So I try to help people navigate their way through the creative process and I dig. Some, I dig. what they want. You want, I guess, but I mean, you're not, we're talking to a, a pretty enlightened character in David Garibaldi. I mean, if cats are coming to see you, uh, I mean, do you gauge whether they're able to, able to actually answer that question immediately? I mean, when the Jake Feinberg show started, it was based on, I was rooted in public policy, but then I free, I kind of, you know, it was, it was there was no soul. So then I went off and just started to woodshed and became fearless and, and just got on the, you know, and now, now this is where it's at. So it's like, is that the, do you ask people even if, do you, or like, do you gauge whether they're even able to answer that question? I mean, that's, that's a heavy thing to, to ask someone. But that's ultimately what leads you to yourself is, you know, what do you want to create? So, you know, and then if that appeals to them, then the the, the journey begins, you know. Could you give an example? And Could you give an example of, of, of your teaching, like how you, like specifically with one student, no names mentioned, but just like how you, uh, because, I mean, people were coming to you and with, you know, I want to be, I mean, who knows in, in this century what they're trying to do differently but somebody comes to you with an outside the box idea can you just can you give it can you give a specificity on that well you know you always want to encourage people to be themselves and that's really why they're coming to see you they're trying to figure out what it is that they want and when you mention to them you know you 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 pause posit that question you know what do you want to create that kind of opens up something in their thinking that wasn't there before. So all you got to do is get to get them to the place or 
show them what they can do so that they can have that, you know, ignition moment, you know, when everything becomes, when they get that moment, when they say, wow, this is cool. This is what I want to do. You know, you get them excited, man. You, I'll have them play. For instance, I'll have somebody play. So, well, let's, you know, we'll talk, we'll always talk first. And I said, well, let's, let's see what you're doing. Let's hear what you're doing. So, of course, everybody's really nervous because they're playing in front of me and all this. <laughs> so I just, you know, kind of disarm. You know, just tell me, just play. Just play how you feel, whatever it is. Play through a couple styles, some beats, whatever you want. And then we get into, they play, and then we get into what they're doing. And that always leads to many other things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I teach at uh, regularly now at Dub's Drum Basement in Dublin, California, a couple times a month or once a month at least when I'm, I'm going to be there in another week or so. And uh, i got a regular bunch of guys coming in there now. And they're all really cool. Everybody's very different. Everybody has very different, you know, goals. All they want, all of them want to be better. And... All of them have things that they're trying to do with their playing. Um, all of them have gigs that they're doing. So they're working on their craft. Some of them have day gigs and play, you know, for just to play. They love it. So you just kind of steer people in the direction that they want to go, help them keep the bus on the road, you know not the direction I want to take them. It's the direction they want to go. And then my gig is to help them see it bigger for themselves and then maybe encourage them in ways that they never thought and help them get to the place where they want, you know. And then maybe if they get good enough, they're comfortable enough, you know, with the stuff and they want to proceed further, I'll hand them off to somebody or I'll suggest that they go study with, you know, style of some kind, you know, something. I totally dig. I, you know, do, do cats come to you and, and say, I want to, I want to be in a team concept. I want to do something along the lines of tower of power. Not, you know, in the idea of saying, I want to be part of a group of people with big ears. Well, yeah, often. Yeah, sure. I mean, everybody wants that, whether they know it or not. So I mean, what's so? I guess what I'm saying is, you don't. You're, it's not like you're going to be like, oh yeah, bring the whole band in so I can work with you guys. So I mean, what 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 advice do you give? Well, I've done that. I mean, I've, I've you done have done that. that. I've yeah. done done you know rhythm section workshops and you know that kind of stuff. Sure. Tower um, has done you yeah. know Tower has done you know, those things. Band clinics, you know, full band clinics. Those are pretty cool. Is there a spot that the cats that that you can talk about some of these students that that is something something 21st century equivalent to the on Broadway where reality sandwich and all that stuff because that to me is like the ultimate I mean you take all that sort of expression natural expression vision and then you're able to sort of you know just sort of hash it out and maybe get a few bucks for it but is there is the, are there places where uh you know meeting grounds that you hear from the younger peeps that cats that come in to see you are there places around that that they can do that 
I mean, once in a while, I'll hear of a place where there's a jam or, you know, somebody has got something organized, <clears throat> you know, excuse me, uh, something organized where they, you know, have a place once a week where they can go do something, you know, with other people and kind of mess around and play. But it's it's not like it was when I was, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was coming up. I mean, there wasn't, you know, the Monday night jam session where, all the bad cats would go, and, you know, if you had the balls, you went in there and you played with some bad cats, and they let you play. And there's, I don't know of any place like that here or in the Bay Area, you know. I'm sure they exist other places. I just haven't heard of one in the Bay Area. Going back to Sid Reese, uh, I was talking to, uh, you know, some uh, – just bluegrass cats about Bill Monroe, Vassar Clemens. You listen to those guys talk and they said the most profound things in like three or four word paraphrases. They weren't even sentences, but what they would say would be absolutely profound. Going back to Sid Reese, was he a guy that was, you know, can you talk about his leadership style and, and ultimately what you learned from that cat? I mean, and also how big was the band on the back of the flatbed? Well, it was a you know it was a big band. We were playing Glenn Miller music. Those probably fifteen guys. You know, it's a big old truck, and they put chairs up there. And, you know, but Sid was um, uh, kind of a mentor, sort of a person. You know, he took an interest in you know people that came in. He was a saxophone player. He took an interest in people that would come in for you know, the lessons and that kind of stuff. He had a piano teacher there, Larry Riera was his name. And um, Larry was a real cool guy, great player, cool teacher. And uh, so, you know, when I, I took some piano lessons there and, you know, Sid took an interest in me, you know, he liked that I was interested, that I was interested and, uh, you know, just was a very mentoring sort of a sort of a guy, you know. We're talking to a, a legendary drummer uh, and uh, teacher, and uh, we're going to we're going to hit this again, this name, that voice, uh, bring you back to yesteryear. I want you to take a listen to this in a much more climate friendly environment and we'll come back and talk about it. Mm hmm. That's what. Studying with him, he he had moved out there to uh, do for a bit, and uh, I remember he had a place out in Canoga Park. Yeah, I was probably like fourteen or something. It was hilarious because my first lesson with him, uh, I didn't even have a drum set. <laughs> I just I just found his number through the musicians' union. Absolutely, <laughs> that's the right way to go. And, yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I love. You're drumming. I want to learn how to play drum kit. And I, at that point, I'd only been working on my hands, just learning uh, rudiments and stuff. And he just, he he was like probably the biggest influence on me just because he taught me how to play a backbeat and how to actually get the sound out of the drums and how to, um, you know, his whole concept was taking the old, you know, soul R&B drummers and kind of modernizing it in a way. And, uh, so he he taught me all the you know inside groove stuff you know like the the sound levels of accented and unaccented notes and 
um, taking rudiments and spreading them out on the kit and making grooves out of them. And I mean, it, it just was really, really eye-opening. I had no idea. You know, I would have just been a basher rock drummer if I hadn't encountered him. He, he really... All right, buddy, what do you got for us? Well, let's see. His grandfather used to bring him to, they lived in San Pedro. <laughs> and uh, his grandfather would bring him to my house. And uh, he was like a real geeky sort of teenage kid. <laughs> yeah, like me. And uh, uh, Matt Chamberlain, in case anybody doesn't. No, who that and is. just by, for the record, for everybody listening all over the world, even when we are not directly communicating with David Garibaldi, we're always asking people about David Garibaldi. So continue, please. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> so, um, you know, he didn't he didn't study with me very long. I mean, he you know he um, was pretty talented. You know, he picked up things really fast. He's very kind of like introverted, sort of geeky, sort of guy. His grandfather was very, very kind. Um, would sit in the living room while we went in my pra- practice studio, and um, um, it was cool. And then, of course, you know, like he went on to do, you know, a lot of cool stuff. You know, he's a very creative guy, one of the more creative ones, you know, that that I've ever met. Um, you know, he just wanted to be himself. He was comfortable with being himself. He was cool with that, you know, which is, you know, the teacher's dream, really, to have somebody that wants to be themselves, you know, doesn't want to be you. They want to be themselves. Can you, you know, what he was riffing on there was this, uh, what we've been talking about in the first 20 minutes of of the interview, which was more about... Uh, you know, what do you want to do? What's your vision? And he said something to the effect about you taking the old style R&B drummers. And I, for, I forget exactly what he said, but I, but it, it's the idea of the, the Garibald, not the method, not the methodology, but can you talk about meshing those styles and when that kind of first came into your consciousness that it was like, wow, this is, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not hearing. This is stuff that I'm. I want to start. I want people to hear this stuff because no one's playing this kind of stuff. This merging that he was talking about. Mm. Because what he basically. I never. I yeah. never thought about it like, you know, like that, man. To me, it was all just a real organic, natural sort of deal. You know, I just to me, music, all music fits together. You know that even though there's stylistic considerations and all of that stuff. I mean, today's player. There are so many influences. There's so many things that go into, you know, like a drum groove or, you know, a, a piece of music that you wouldn't even think, you know, well, how does that influence that? You know, you're going, uh, you know, but I, I just think all music fits together. And <clears throat> when you start looking at it and then start studying it, the, you know, the connection of, you know, the influence of, uh, you know, African music and in, in all the music that we play today, you know, it's kind of a bottom line sort of deal, really. And, you know, you start studying all those kinds of music and then you, you just get ideas. I don't know where the ideas come from. I mean, God, I guess. I mean, I get ideas. You know, I have, 
what if I move this over here? What if I try this with this? What if I do this with this? It's always that. It's always, um, you know, moving in some kind of direction that, you know, mixes things together. It's always been like that for me. I don't know. I have any idea where it came from. But for me, music was always a mixture of stuff. Mm. I think it's probably because I like so much different kinds of music and I listened so much different kind of music as I was growing up that, you know, that blender, you know, what comes out, you know, is what I am, you know. It's just one big smoothie of all sorts of, you know, I, I dig. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I dig the concoctions uh, or the, the, all the different, you know, music as a meal, as, as the great Ndugu Chancellor said, you know, it's, it, you can't just have chicken. It's got to be a whole, you know, you got to have all the, the accompanying parts of it, but I think that when he's when he's talking about if I didn't meet Garibaldi, I just would have been a basher. See, like that's the part that I hear a lot today, and, and it was validated yesterday by uh, the engineer Val Garay. He said that I mean, he he was just talking about modern singers and modern music today. You don't hear any dynamics at all like low and high. And I'm curious about um, how, wh- what do you think he means by I, I would have just been a basher if I didn't meet Garibaldi? And number two, when was the best opportunity in your career to learn about the dynamic, the dynamics within tunes? Because we just, it seems like loud at some point in the 70s, uh, the bass drum became very prevalent and all of a sudden la- people thought louder wins and you came in before that time. So what, how did you, you know, what did he mean by that? I just would have been a basher. And how did you break that, that, that sort of, you know, well, I mean, I, you know, I didn't break it. He broke it. I mean, you know, he listened. I mean, he had, real sensitive musical ears. He wanted to play musically. And all I did was just tell him that there's a lot of stuff out there that can make your playing better. There's a lot of, you know, music that you can listen to that'll open your ears. Um, we talked about, you know, it's just fundamentals, man. I mean, when I, one of the first things I learned when I, from my elementary school music teacher was, Music is loud and soft and in between. And, you know, that's why there's, you know, all those, you know, Italian musical terms, you know, forte, pianissimo, you know, all of that, mezzo forte, they all mean something. They mean something dynamically, you know. So I think when you study music in a organized way and study you know, get fundamentals together. Um, you learn about that. You learn about dynamics. You learn about, you know, the ebb and flow of music. It's not, you know, just 10 all the time, you know. Where did you get that on the bandstand in terms of, I mean, was it Tower of Power? That's the way I came up. I mean, that's the way I learned. That's the way I learned to play. That's the way I learned to do music. You know, so it started way back when I was a little boy learning music, those are the things that, you know, I learned then. And then of course, joining tower tower was like, you know, a big band, but 
playing 16th notes. So all I did was play tower just like I was playing like with Count Basie. And, I, you know, but it was Count Basie and James Brown and Motown and, <laughs> you know, all this other stuff. And so um, sometimes when I hit a cymbal, I think of it like I'm in an orchestra. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, hit the cymbal so that it breaks. Um, you know, there's a certain aggression that kind of some points in the music, there's kind of a, you know, you need some kind of a, aggression, right? But then there's other points in the music where you just need to touch the instrument. You don't need to, you know, hit it very hard to convey what that moment means, what that emotion is, you know? And you learn those things. I mean, it's just part of learning what music is. And then in playing it, you know, music, a, a performance is like like your life, you know? It's just such ebbs and flows. Stephen Ferroni said that... Uh... He said, if you listen to Headhunters, Harvey talking about Harvey Mason has an R&B feel. Harvey plays very lightly. He's a very light playing drummer, but when he records, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like there's an enormous backbeat. I mean, these are things that, I guess, as a non-musician, these are fascinating sort of things. You say that you just learn them over time, but I just, in my mind, it's like, well, you need to have taste. And you need to have sensitivity, and you need, most importantly, you need to. Yeah, but all those things—you're not born with those things. Those are learned skills. Those are things that you learn, you know, in the, you know, in the, the what's the word, the crucible of, you know, making music, making you. Those are things that you learn. Those are acquired things. Right. You're not. You're not born with. You know, all of a sudden, you you know, born with sensibility and taste and all this other stuff. You're, you. That's stuff that you get. And then, you know, you have strengths and weaknesses. And some people have strengths where they have, you know, incredible sensitivity to certain kinds of music, certain kinds of, you know, ways they phrase solos. You know, it's all personal stuff. Can you talk about... um you know, as objectively as possible, how, you know, you guys in Tower of Power, do you, who, who does the set lists? You guys have been playing huge amounts of shows, but what I'm getting at is the idea is, you know, how, how, how do you, how do you always, how do you never play the same song once? How do you keep things interesting so that you're not, the cats are not playing the same solos every night and that there is, spontaneity still in this in this uh in the live music context i mean I, I think that's very important i just like i mean i've been talking to chamberlain like chamberlain like they just put out an album and it was completely improvisational and the guy who was you know doing a review for it, it was a jazz critic you know was just flummoxed by it he said you got to be kidding me you, you must have practiced there must be a little bit of practice and it was like no this is completely improvised and it's kind of like once you once you figure out how to play, like you said, you build the rudiments, you build the foundations, and then you learn to take risks. And after a while, it just becomes normal. But 
when you have an audience there that is expecting to see a certain sort of a certain show with the greatest hits very it could it could be formulaic how do you keep it spontaneity how do you keep that spontaneity especially the rhythm section well it's fun i don't know it's it's fun you know uh it's it's our own thing i mean we're working for ourselves you know uh we, we play our own music uh all the music that I play, I created the parts for. So if there's a problem, then the problem is with me, not with what I created. It's, you know, my way of approaching things. So we have, like, uh, right now we have, like, three sets of stuff that we do with a couple repeats and there are things we you know, certain songs we just we just do all the time. We've got about three three different sets now, and uh, we mix and match tunes, and it's good stuff, man. I mean, you got to, you know, yes, it's formulaic in a way, but if you're soloing, that's something else. You know, the solo content is on you and how to make it interesting. Uh, how you use your vocabulary to, you know, go through that solo each night. And our guys are really good at it. You know, they, you don't hear a lot of repeats, <laughs> you know, guys have like licks and things that they do, but you know, these guys can blow. You're so right. it's really fun, fun listening to them. And then, you know, our music is, is very organized. So we have, uh, you know, an organized approach to what we do. And there's, you know, people have been coming to see us, and some people have come to see us, I don't know, hundreds of times, and have heard some of the songs played by different configurations of the band, different singers and all that stuff. They never get tired of it, it seems like, you know? And it's just such a nice thing to see people enjoying it at that level. You know, they're enjoying it like we are. You know, and it's it's cool. And uh, and you're getting and you and, and it's a gig. It's you know you're get. I mean you're 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 making your livelihood off of it, which is uh, which is fantastic. I mean, are, are do you have an uh, a desire or are there opportunities for you to be? Uh, are you going to do any side projects? Any side leadership? I would. I just would love to know about stuff that you're still chant that you you that are not necessarily you're not necessarily comfortable with but you're still willing to push yourself outside I'm talk, not talking about tower but I'm just talking about in general as a as a as a as an elder as an elder really now uh, in melodic improvisation in, in in the musical lexicon what are some of the things you're still challenging yourself with and are there going to be some Garibaldi side projects that we can look forward to in the near future well, there might be. I mean, <laughs> good answer, man. Well, I mean, it's the truth, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. You know, there might be. I mean, I, I, you know, love doing this. I mean, there's just so many different things to get into. You know, I, I really dig my band. I mean, I honestly do. I mean, I, I stay with it because I like <clears throat> how we do things. I like that 
Nobody looks over your shoulder. You get to be yourself. And, you know, that's really all you can ask for. And so it's kind of like a dream sort of a gig, really. Um, I enjoy all the people in it. We have a great time together. We're a big family. We're actually beyond that. We're an organism now. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just, it's a great thing, you know, and side projects, you know, I was doing a whole bunch of side projects a few years ago and then stopped really because I was never home. And so I just cut back on all, you know, all the extra stuff and just devoted my time to tower. And then, you know, um, I started doing, you know, clinics again. Uh, I do all the educational stuff. I write books, which I really enjoy doing. I always wanted to be a teacher. I always liked teachers, really good teachers. Always interested me. You know, I've had some really great ones. And the <clears throat> my favorite ones were the ones that were, you know, like these Yoda kind of people, you know, that you could always go to and they would have an answer for something. And that's kind of the teacher that I want to want to be, mm. you know, is uh, I like this player teacher thing. I like that, you know, player coach sort of vibe, you know? Yeah. Like, um, uh, I mean, maybe not the most apropos, but like uh, Pete Rose, uh, you know, manager, uh, yeah. you know, teacher, teacher, player, yeah, player coach. Player coach. Deal, yeah. Can you can you point to a Yoda esque character uh, leader that you that you really felt? Because I mean that stuff is you're ta you're talking more about you know you want to be that, and the question is, do you have the constitution to do that inside of you? And I'm just curious about because those cats, it, it's effortless because it's who they are. It's their true nature. Uh, just like Vassar Clemens, you you hear him talk about people playing bluegrass fiddle and. In four words, he, he has you cracking up, and he's spot on about it. And I'm just curious about uh, uh, if you could point to a Yoda-esque teacher you had that, and maybe something profound that they said or, or, or helped you with. Well, there were three really, I guess, really, well, I had four really kind of really important teachers. Now, I sort of have, I always have a teacher. I have a teacher today. And throughout my music life, I've always had teachers. I think that having a teacher is one of the most valuable things that you can have as a performer, as a, you know, someone in the arts, is someone who uh, does what you do and, that has perspective. Because that's what you want. You want perspective. Because if you're always inside yourself, you lose it sometimes. So yes. you like yes. always like to have other eyes on what you're doing and what you're thinking. So in high school, it was um, Mr. James Campana and Anthony Caviglia. They were my teachers in high school. Great men who got me really thinking about playing music, you know, um, really got, getting serious about it. <clears throat> then uh, when I um, got out of the service and there was, well, actually before I went to the service, there was 
Mr. Graves, Gene Graves, who was my college music teacher, and then I studied with him again after I got out of the military because I went back to school for a short time, and he was still there teaching, and so and he was even greater then. I think it's because I was more uh, open even to all the things that he was teaching. And then uh, studying with Chuck Brown in Oakland at Sherman and Clay upstairs um, every week. That was probably one of the great, one of the greatest musical experiences ever. Why? And then, well, because he taught me about discipline and um, I bought into it. I'd never really done that before, but, you know, wasn't mature enough to really, you know, buy into what the teacher was was trying to, to show me, you know, and though I did, and so it kind of like took my playing to, you know, some levels that I never even imagined that I would get to. And then when I lived in L.A., um, there were a few guys there. They were really, really excellent teachers. And I ended up, I had gone to Richard Wilson, and I really dug him. I, he just was such a cool guy. But he smoked too much weed, and it was difficult to, you know, have a lesson that wasn't rambling on different places. And so we remained really good friends until he passed. And uh, he was just a really, really excellent, excellent, excellent teacher. And then uh, I studied with Murray Spivak. And Murray was very elderly at the time, <clears throat> but like, just like Yoda, man. He was like, you know, he could look at you and tell you what you're, what kind of person you were, <laughs> listen to you talk. And tell you what you're thinking. I mean, he was just he could look amazing. into your soul. He could. Look. I just want to go back. He was back amazing, to man. Chuck he would like. Yeah. Well, well, this whole but Murray would like. Yeah, go ahead. Would uh, his lessons were very simple, very old school. He came from the vaudeville tradition, and uh, had come to Hollywood to do sound effects for movies from vaudeville. So, uh, I think his first gig was on the original King Kong movie. And so that's kind of, he has a very, had a very rich history in Hollywood in the movie thing, you know, and it became a sound recorder and got an Oscar and all this other stuff. I mean, it was a pretty bad dude. And that kept, always kept his drum teaching practice. So his exercises were all very, very simple. It was reading, it was rudiments, uh, you know, hand technique, all this really just orchestral sort of stuff. And it was just beautiful. And so the lessons were either on a practice pad or a snare drum. And when I'd be sometimes on the, the um, playing on the practice pad, the exercise, he'd watch my hands and then he'd kind of look away. And he'd say, loosen your right hand. It's not resonating. And so I would do it. And then all of a sudden, the notes that are in the sticks, the <clears throat> tone that's in the wood as it hits the pad, the stick starts to resonate. And I'm going, whoa, this is really good. I've never experienced that before. 
and listening on that level. And my hands, I got so relaxed and could play all these really intricate things, but from a very relaxed place was from his teaching. He, when he would say, you know, you're gripping too much here. You loosen your left hand on that stroke, you know, all this. It was brilliant. How much of that are you able to infuse with your own personality into your own, have, have, have students called you Yoda? Oh, I don't know, man. You know, <laughs> you don't give them a, you don't give them a sheet at the end of the, sem- the semester saying, can you please fill out and see if you, uh, how this, well, goes. the thing about somebody that's Yoda, they don't call themselves Yoda. No, I dig. I'm saying you're, but I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, first of all, who's your teacher today? Well, interestingly enough, I have a couple guys who, to me, teach me really good life lessons. Uh, and I'm not going to give you their names, but they're really, really super people. Hmm. And uh, one guy uh, is not a professional drummer. He plays the drums. He has a real successful business. Um, we worked out together, ran together. Um, we'd had this workout that we used to do uh, before I had my hip surgeries. There was a place in, in the Bay Area called Seal Point Park. It's right on the bay. And um, it's just this mound of dirt. And you can see it as you're coming across, you're going west on the San Mateo Bridge. And they have these... Um, stairs there a hundred stairs and our workout would be um we would run the stairs 10 times and then do exercises in between each trip up the stairs so it's a hundred stairs 10 times that was the workout and during those workouts we would just talk about life we would talk about things i'd you know, we're very interested in each other's lives and their families and all that stuff. And um, it was a, a just a fabulous, you know, we still do those kind of things, work out together, talk all the time. He's a person I, who's a, a, whose perspective I appreciate. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's it's, another guy, yeah, ahead, yeah. There's, a, there's another guy who I just saw and, uh, He's a drummer, um, brilliant guy, very hardcore, old school thinking kind of guy. He's my age, actually, he's a little bit younger than me. Have I interviewed him yet? Uh, no. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so he, this guy might, to me, the other cat sounds like a spiritual brother. This cat, maybe before you go off, it sounds like. Well, is he more the practical application of the of the drums? Well, he's a drummer. This right. this guy's like a, a you know like mm-hmm. a real he's he's a drumming is not his hobby. You know, like he, it's his life, mm-hmm. and uh, he just has real old school, interesting ways to look at things, and is a straight shooter. Really, really cool guy. And so I uh, just love these guys. They're just my friends. Uh, I appreciate them. I know their families and their kids and all this stuff. And um, they're just beautiful, beautiful people. 
who have a lot to talk about. <laughs> you know, to me anyway, I, you know, I'm, I'm the one that's listening. But I just love it, you know. So, <clears throat> yes, I always have somebody who's teaching me or mentoring me, always. One of the things about my show that happened organically, like you said, it all just sort of comes together in a blender, but I realized over time it was, um, and maybe it was something that I was not doing enough of in my in the rest rest of my life was respecting my elders. And even though I'm not a musician by any means, I mean, I am now seeking my peers and getting their stories, but I spent, as you know, a good five years just going after my elders. And I just wanted you to talk about the importance of respect to your elders. I look at um, a lot of some of the some of the stuff just r- rippling through our country now, and I, I look at it in many ways as um, a lack of respect towards your elders. Uh, and I'm not trying to sound hokey or, I mean, I have kids of my own and you know, the hierarchical structure of the family has changed in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the nuclear family has changed in a lot of ways. But um, what is tell, talk to the talk to younger cats about the importance of respecting elders, not so much having a mentor. I think a lot of people have mentors, but why it's so important to respect your elders. I don't know that a lot of people have mentors. And maybe I, that's work true too. All, yeah. I work with people all the time and having a mentor is part of the passing on of a tradition of uh, passing on, you know, passing the baton, you know, especially passing on tradition, you know, um, that's what mentoring is. You're passing on something, you know, the Indian music tradition is loaded with, you know, that's all based on that, you know, um, growing up under the guidance of someone. And then that person who guided you has your respect and admiration and, you know, you defer to them for the rest of your life. Um, I remember w- when I was playing with Mickey Hart, uh, Sakir Hussein who was in the band. Uh, one day he came to the gig and he handed all of us incense. And he said, today is the day in India that we pay tribute to our teachers. Whoever it is that taught you, today's the day that you pay tribute to them. Hmm. Now, in Modern society, are we taught to have a special day to think about and, you know, the lessons we've learned from our teachers? I don't think so. No. And to me, that was such an awesome awesome thing that he would want to include me in that and uh, I never forgot it I thought it was just wow this is this is really important this is um, 
this is real. This is what you do. This is how you learn. This is how you, you know, you pass on what you're doing. Mike Clark, my brother Mike Clark, is really big on this stuff, roots Hmm. stuff. You know, he's really, really big on tradition and history. I remember uh, Tower of Power was playing at uh, B.B. King's in New York City, and Mike brought Buster Williams to see us. And I about crapped myself. (laughs) I thought I was going to (laughs) collapse. And here I'm shaking Buster Williams' hand. I actually have a photo of him and me someplace. And Mike was so proud, man. He was so, you know, just happy that he could bring the guy that he would come and, you know, wanted them to wanted him to hear us. And it was just a it was so cool. I remember we played with Herbie Hancock at Winterland in San Francisco and it was the Crossings band and Buster Williams was in that. And um, I remember that gig, man. We're looking at all these guys, Julian Priester and all these cats, Benny Maupin. Eddie Henderson. We're looking at these cats and we're just... We're awestruck. I remember watching Billy Hart play. And we were just, um, I know I was. I couldn't believe it, man, that I was in the same place with these guys. And they were all so cool. They were just really friendly, you know. But they had such a vibe, man, you know. And I think it was the tradition that they came up in, you know, the American music, you know, jazz music, you know, um, as a very rich tradition. And it's all about passing on stuff. You know, there's a, there's a line of people that each of us comes from and it, enriches your musical experience to really know what that line is that you came from. Do, so that's where I'm at. About oh, I know. I mean, this is, this is why, I mean, I, I mean, I, this is why I love cooking the groove with you, man, because I, I guess the, the follow-up on that question is, so that's a lot to bite off, but, insofar as the continuum of music and in the lineage of music is your advice to people uh when you i mean you are you just you do what you can do to affect change in your world in the david in the david garibaldi world meaning you are a mentor to your students you try to do the best you can to pass along the roots and the lineage of the music and the discipline and all that stuff. Is that all you can do or is there more that you want to do or believe you should do? What else is there? Starting the David Garibaldi quintet. No, no, no. (laughs) You know, the, the thing that's most important to me is to try to, live according to my values to 
be my best that I can be, you know, push myself to do that, to, you know, have a standard that I try to operate by, you know, um, and I think that that's, you know, that's what I can share with people. You know, I can teach people how to do that, you know, how to live according to their, to their values, you know, to operate according to the play drums, according to their values. And if you don't have a value system yet, how to get it, you know, think about it. And, um, that's what I want to do. I mean, it maybe a, a, a Dave Garibaldi quintet, maybe that's in the cards someday, but you know, I don't even care about that. Really, honestly, um, I'm doing what I like to do. Seriously. I mean, I, I already have a footprint in this thing and, um, you know, uh, I, I like where it is. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I enjoy my interactions with people. I enjoy my bandmates. I like my music. I like having my ass kicked on the road. I like jet lag. I must. I've been doing it for, you know, so long. Uh, um, I like when I see my brothers out on the road and we share a few moments together, you know, like, I see Mike, you know, Mike Clark. Um, that dude, is he's just golden to me, man. I just remember coming up, you know, and meeting him and kind of the our paths sort of, I don't know, man. We just uh, have a shared experience that no one else has. I mean, we came from such a cool era and, you know, hooked up with really cool bands and kind of had a vibe that we were following in our playing and, you know, um, understand each other really well, you know, from that standpoint, you know, wanting to have understanding tradition, respect for, you know, respect for our elders, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, when Mike brought Buster Williams to the gig, man, he was like, I still have that scene in my mind. We're backstage there at BB Kings, and it was like um, he had Yoda with him, and it was so deep, man. It was just really, really cool. And he just a big smile on his face, and this is Buster Williams. It's holy shit, so great, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, I mean, it's a, it's it's a revelation every day because I get to interview Delbert McClinton about how he met Mike Clark in a bar in Texas. And next thing you know, they're on the road and you know that yeah. I, I just, it's about caring. It's about heart and love. I mean, that's the point is that you guys, the photos you put up on Facebook uh, indicate a band of love. And I'd look at my generation and younger <clears throat> generations where it seems like the ego or the person has one person has, you know, the music was always your philosophy, your generation had always the music was always above everybody else. And somewhere along the line, that kind of got out of whack. I guess my, you know, looking at it just as an observer, are you, do you worry that there isn't enough respect for elders and people, not enough mentors out there? And so far as, um, 
you know, just in the general scene that when you see people bashing all over the place and and sort of, well, just in general, I mean, just just people saying very blanket statements like, well, we live in a completely different time and it's it's a whole new world. And those are very, very colloquial phrases when, in fact, it's all right there if you are willing to open your heart and seek Seek from people well, that, that that's all. I mean, do you, you answered your question before about your view of of mentoring? But do you worry that that is not just a lost art, but it's gonna it's hurting our our society? I don't think about it like that. I mean, I'm not here to change the world, man. I mean, you know, I'm my worries. I guess you know, in quote quotes. Um, or whether I'm going to play really well, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. tomorrow night on the bandstand. Am I going to be there for my brothers? I mean, when somebody in the band, you know, wants to talk about something or something happens or, you know, like my family, my wife, my kids, you know, is my son going to have confidence at his basketball game? I mean, this is stuff that I think about. I mean, I, you know, want my family to be peaceful you know, and safe and happy and all that. And so if I worry about stuff, it's not those, those kind of things. That's, you know, that's just, I think everybody has those, those concerns, you know? No, I know. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I, but you, but that, I mean, that's, I don't think, I don't think about it like that, man. Really. I don't, you know, I was looking at, you know, tradition here. You're talking about tradition. I saw a picture yesterday of, uh, from a NAM show. It was, Jim Keltner, Earl Palmer, Zig, and me. And I'm going, man, I do not belong with that crowd. But I'm in the picture. It looks good. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, maybe there's just, I, I, maybe you do, I think you do belong in that crowd. Well, it's just, you know, it's, I, I say it, you know, facetiously, you know. But I think about all those guys and my interactions with all those guys are just such nice people, you know, great, great, unique, unique players. And that is what you want to be. You want to be like those guys have a footprint in this like those people do. Um, so... Rocco, I'm I'm looking here at Frenchies. He said we used to pl- have the Go Go Girls call out tunes at Frenchies and Hayward. Sly played there. Cold Blood used to be around. The band Extension Five started in Fremont before we relocated to Oakland. We felt if we could just get to Frenchies, then we would have made it. You walk into this big old club with a stage in the back. We eventually got there. It was the place to play. Were you? I mean, so did you? So did Extension Five played there, but did the actual I mean, when did you play there? With Tower. So it was already converted to the name had changed to Tower at that point. And you guys were playing at Frenchies. I joined the I joined the band when it was Tower of Power. I was in the military when those guys were, you know, learning how to play. We're there we're five years or so apart, and so when I was in the military, I was nineteen years old. They were like fourteen and fifteen. So they were learning how to play, and they learned fast. So Rocco and Emilio had been playing together since 
they were 14 years old. Now, Frenchies, which was this really fancy supper club, kind of became more like a rock and roll kind of place where everybody started playing. I mean, we used to play in there. We would we would rock that place. It was really fun. There was one night that we did it. We had a jam there. Oh, all these people came. Stevie Wonder was in there. Redbone, Larry Graham, Cold Blood. All these people, and they're all lined up wanting to play and jam. And it was really, really a pretty amazing night. Just and by the way, before we wrap up, I wanted to you know the military serve. Uh, you know, I just picked up you know this this. Uh, these Air Force records that are so funky and bluesy from the 70s. Again, this is, you're well into your career at this point. But you must have been playing blues, funky blues in the Army, in the military band. I mean, it was not just military marches. Can you break down some bluesy, funky stuff that you were you were grooving on in the arm, in the military? Yeah, but the blues, it's like, that's like a, a, a foundational way to play i mean the blues is in jazz music i mean the blues is it's part of uh you know american uh music you know so right it's in everything you know blues changes are in everything and um of course i played that stuff everybody did you know and then there's blues bands and you know there's you know choruses you know you listen to you know some of those great organ records you know Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff, all those cats, and Jack McDuff. Blues-based music. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I picked up an album today. I'm just saying that it's not, uh, I, I'm not sure if, I'm just saying this military band picked up in 77, there's a cat, they did a version of Butterfly. I, you know, they, I mean, funk was not necessarily in the lexicon as a musical term when you were in the army, but were you, were you, you guys were playing funky blues? Well, when you say funky blues, what do you mean? There was no, uh, l- l- let's talk about this for just a second. You know, military music was at the time that I was in was not modern by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it was marching bands we had a symphonic band which was really amazingly good wow uh we had um small combos we had a jazz group you know a big band you know kind of stuff but and so the young guys we were bringing in uh music to play and the older guys didn't dig it because they were rooted in you know, military music tradition, which was Glenn Miller and, you know, um, marches, John Philip Sousa and all this other stuff, right? And so during that time when I was in, all these young people were coming in, right? So, because it was Vietnam. And so they were changing the way that military music was being played because it was young people coming in. They have all these influences, all these different things going on, right? So it was a big, big change for military music. And I, I liked the military, and I considered staying in 
But the music thing was just, it sucked. It was not going anywhere. And then they changed it so that it was more contemporary. And so when you're hearing recordings like you found and kind of what it is today, um, it is, you know, changed considerably. Now, I was in a field band. The bands that you want to be in if you're in the military are like they were like the headquarters bands. There was the NORAD band, which was in Colorado Springs, and they were a combination of different services. Plus, I think Canada. That's right. You know, that's right. Uh, Canadian bands were in it. Bob Shue was Bobby Shue. He was in that. And uh, then there was. Uh, I think a band in Nebraska at the SAC headquarters. They had a big, pretty serious band there. But the band that you wanted to be in was the, the bands in D.C. All the D.C. bands, the Air Force band, the Marine band, the Army band, the Coast Guard band, the Navy band, all the D.C. bands are the cream of the crop. And so... If I would have stayed in, I would have tried to get in that. <clears throat> that was a serious, serious. You know, the Airmen of Note, the Commodores. The Airmen the, uh, of Note, that's it. The Airmen yeah, of Note. Yeah, that's the Air Force big band in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, 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 I'm before I, I want to. This guy, I, I, I found the. I literally found the record today, and I was smiling because I, I said well, I'm going to talk to Garibaldi because um, this guy's name is Skip Schaefer. Schaefer is a drummer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If that yeah. name, does that name ring a bell at all or no? It does. I couldn't tell you much about it, but yeah, I know the name. Right. I mean, because it's like. It says, does anyone know about the whereabouts of Skip Schaefer? He was the drummer on the Airmen of Note. And Billy Drummond chimes in. I still have some uh, Dr. Steve Gadd and Tony Williams transcriptions that this guy Skip Schaefer sent me 40 years ago. <laughs> no idea where he is. I'm just saying it was like, wow, man. that that was. It's interesting to know that when you guys came in, whatever you the new stuff that you were bringing in to add to the language, those guys weren't getting off on. And then it was almost like, you you got pulled back into the vibrancy of just the musical of our culture, and then it kind of broke through and, and it became more flexible. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to know where he was, you could probably um, contact uh, the the Air Force band um, in D.C. They have a website, and it's possible that they could give you a line on where he was you know one final question for you mr garibaldi and it's it's such a it's so great to connect with you again brother um could you just talk about the most inspirational thing that you uh that you've had had go on in your life in 2016 most inspirational thing well there's there's a bunch of things, you know, I, honestly, and I say this respectfully and, you know, but I, I find a lot of inspiration uh, in my life all the time. I mean, I think that's, I look for it. I look for things to be inspired by. I mean, my son, he's 11 years old and 
he discovered that he wanted to play basketball hmm. and discovered in playing it that if he wanted to play, he was going to have to hustle. So we have conversations about that. And, I, you know, he's his first game this season, he was in the starting five. He's 11. And I'm going, man, this is so great. And um, just the fact that I'm, I had two major surgeries last year. I feel fantastic. I just turned 70. <clears throat> um, I mean, what's not to be blown away by? I mean, it's, uh, I get to do this. I'm still doing this. <clears throat> I'm not tired, believe it or not. We have this most stupid schedule. <laughs> Last week I was in China. I was home for a day. Right. I, you know, washed some clothes, had dinner with my wife and, and boy had, you know, a great dinner. Next day I got on the plane, came out here and did this. Um, I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, I can't pinpoint one thing. It's just a big... Well, no, let's go back to your son, though, the the idea of hustling. What did you tell him about hustling? Because obviously he's he's loving the Golden State Warriors. You guys are out in that neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. So it's well, like... I told him, that, you know, I told him if you want to play, because the teacher says the coaches already have told you that um, everybody's going to get to play, but the best ones will play more. So if you want to be one of those, then... You have to work on your game. You have to improve your shooting. You have to play really, really good in-your-face defense. And you have to run the floor the entire practice and the entire game. And he said, but they don't pass me the ball. I said, well, if your game improves, they're going to trust you with the ball, and you're going to get it. So... Now he's getting people passing him the ball. He's involved. He's just, you know, was in the starting five. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I dig. I dig. I think it's really cool because uh, um, it's the, you got to pay your dues in order to gain trust, trust on the bandstand, trust on the basketball court. And if you have an impact on that, on him, then that is inspirational. And I'll be honest with you. I just say it because, um, you could, you can look at things and if you don't seek in today's world, you can be, get very demoralized. I, 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 ref, it doesn't happen to me because I'm cranking out. I'm talking to cats like you every day. I'm being inspired every day. Uh, but it's nice to know when you, uh, you know, you just talk to people that are still doing what they're doing, what they love to do and what's still, uh, you know, gets them inspired and so um and with that when are you when are you actually going to be back in uh in the bay area i mean when is this tour uh, we go home monday we go home monday uh we have four more shows and then uh home for a few days which i'm looking forward to well we'll reconvene in the uh in the near future uh dave it was uh, david it was just uh it's always an honor to connect with you man and um well thanks for having me man this is you know good conversation uh Always a lot of stuff to talk about. Always. You know? uh, always a lot of good things going on in life. 
that, uh, you know, are inspiring. Well, I appreciate you. And I think the Jake Feinberg show is one of them. So, I mean, I listen, the bottom line is thank you for your support along the way, man. Uh, you know, you've been, uh, you know, you've told me the truth along the way and that's the mo- most important thing. No, I mean, I mean, how do you, how, do you, how do you grow? How do you grow? So anyway, uh, much love, man, and uh, keep swinging and have a great rest of the tour. We'll be in touch. All right, brother. Later Enjoy on, dude. Your day, and I'll talk to you real soon. Say hi to all Bye-bye. the guys. Say hi to all the guys for me. All right. I'll do it. Thank I'll you, brother. All right, bro. Later, Bye. man. Peace. Just finished up there is our third interview with uh, legendary drummer of Tower of Power, David Garibaldi. Um, we will be back on Saturday with Oteil Burbridge and Steve Gadd. In the meantime, we are going to rejoin the Jim Parisi show in progress. And uh, I also have to say congratulations on the big, big show here. And uh, I love your confirmation haircut. It's really working for you. That's me. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Listen, I I don't, uh, like you, I I believe that uh, I have nothing against protests per se unless you inconvenience innocent people grievously or break other people's stuff. I I was a renowned or notorious protester, however you want to characterize it, 1968, 1969.